before you listen to today's awesome episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Eileen, who helped support the podcast. Contributions like these help offset some of the costs that go into maintaining the podcast. There are no sponsors or advertisements for the show, and so right now I pay for all the hosting and other costs related to maintaining the podcast. If you're interested in helping support the show, go to ko-fi.com forward slash Dana Wanzer. You can also find the link in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or know someone who you think should be on, please reach out to podcast at danawanzer.com. I'd love to chat with you about any and all things evaluation related. And now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Evalueland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evalueland. This week, I'm chatting with Jan Noga, owner of Pathfinder Evaluation and Consulting in Cincinnati, Ohio. We're both in the Teaching of Evaluation TIG, which recently started a quite active Facebook group, lots of fun. And when we were asked to share what topics we like to teach or facilitate, she mentions systemic design thinking, and a ton of folks were interested in learning more about the topic, myself included. So thank you so much, Jan, for coming onto the podcast to discuss this topic and share it with our listeners. Well, you're welcome. Um, I am a longtime systems person. I I started this way back when I was in, actually not even graduate school before that, as an undergraduate, I was a psych major. And in developmental psychology, I was going to go on in counseling. And I was working on my graduate degree in counseling. I had my internship all lined up and 1978 happened and Prop 13 passed in California, which meant that anybody in human services suddenly had no job. So what I found was it was so frustrating to be faced with this. You're ready to go out. You've got clients who need you. And I was working with kids. So I had kids who needed us, who needed our services. And yet we couldn't because of a policy decision. And I got very interested in how this all started, I guess, how it worked together, how it, how policy affected human development, how human development affected policy. And from that, I really started moving into systems theory because that's the way you understand it. It's about complexity, it's about complex systems and about agents within those systems that interact and affect each other and create a system that is self-perpetuating and very, very difficult to change. So that changed my graduate degree track. I ended up in human development and family studies with Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was a big systems person. Yes. Oh my gosh, you got to study with Bronfenbrenner? Yeah, he was my he was my chair. I'm okay. I don't fangirl a lot, but I like really <laughs> like Bramford Brenner. That's oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> Yuri was so cool, and he his he would take his students. They were like his family, and we would there'd be thanks Thanksgiving. They always had huge dinner, and then everybody go for a big long walk. They uh, he had he was where I really learned to pick apart an argument. They. We would, in our classes with him, he would have an article, we'd be assigned a research article. And rather than discuss, so what did you learn? What were the results? What were the findings? What we did is we would talk about, so what questions were asked? Were these good questions? Could they have asked other questions? Could they have asked these questions differently? How did that affect how they did their research? What about the data they collected? Did they miss anything? Was this a you know, good data collection? Was it sound? Was it uh, lacking? Were there other things they could have gone for? We would do the same thing with the analysis. So we would really, really pick these things apart. And it was training for critical thinking that you just don't get in, in a standard research class. And that got me, I think that was my launch. That, that was my 
really big launch into this kind of, of thinking. And a way it, it pushed me away from research. I was going straight academic track and it pushed me away from research. I had already, that's why I didn't go into experimental psych, too much control, too little context and too little real life. This stuff never shows up in real life. You, you have these carefully constructed experiments that are fine within this carefully constructed context. And then you get out into life and things happen such as Prop 13. So I went on, we moved here to Cincinnati. I was in upstate New York at the time. We moved here to Cincinnati following my husband's job. <clears throat> Procter and Gamble all roads lead to Cincinnati. So, and I went to the, I was at the University of Cincinnati and I had decided that what I wanted to do was get a master's in instructional design and technology. Cause I wanted to teach, but I didn't necessarily want to be an academic researcher. So what I did is ended up as an adjunct there. I was also working in the Dean's office uh, in the, the research component of his for writing proposals, crunching these things out. And the evaluation center director was a friend of mine there on the campus. And she had been trying for two years to nudge me over to her side of the campus. And she finally got me to come over. It was just one of these days I walked in and I had all this work planned, stuff I had to get done. And uh, the Dean was a very much off the cuff kind of guy. And so the whole day could blow up like that. And I had had it because I couldn't get any of my other stuff done. And I said, okay, I'm yours. And I went over and that's actually how I got involved in the evaluation. It was a fall into it. But to me, it was so real. It's real life. You're going out there. You're not constructing and controlling an experimental situation. What you're really doing is going out and seeing what happens when you put a program out into the real world what are the results and why did those happen? And they lend themselves so well to the systems view. That's where I took it. That's where I started using systems. It's very hard. Clients go, oh, that's so hard. Oh, it's too complex. It's too, it's too confusing. So you have to do systems by stealth. You just don't use the terminology, but you yourself are structuring and thinking about it that way. AEA came along. I started going to AEAs and 2003, the DC conference actually was in Crystal City. That's when Bob Williams and Patricia Rogers and Glenda Oyoung had wanted to do a workshop, couldn't get accepted. But Susan Kistler said, I tell you what, I'll give you some blocks on the schedule and you can break it up and you can teach. So they did like three sessions on different aspects of, of systems thinking. And then there ended up another person ended up doing another session, which was related to that in agent-based modeling. So we ended up having an entire thread that went through the conference on systems thinking. And we all got together afterwards in the bar and said, this was really, really great. What can we do about this? Next year was Atlanta. And in Atlanta, we put a proposal in and the board accepted a proposal for a new TIG and that was the systems TIG and that was when it launched. So Bob and I were the first program co-chairs, Patricia Rogers was the chair and we took it from there and, and the systems TIG got its start there. But I've gotten less about doing evaluation with systems and thinking more back at that root level of design. So I've been, I'm trying to think when it started, around 2010, 2011, and I went to the, I also belonged to the IIIS, International Group of Systems, IISS, or it's a system sciences professional group, like AEA, and I started going to those conferences. Mary, Mary McKeithen and I would go, and there was a group there who were all designers, I mean, they were from the design world, from OCAD in Toronto, from the Oslo School of Design in Norway, from these different design programs where they were busy designing products and, and services and things. And they just felt that the problem was they were running into these issues of, with, 
related to complexity that linear design thinking just didn't work for because design thinking is very, very convergent. You start divergent, you brainstorm, you think of everything you can think of, you bring it all together, and then you start narrowing it down to the one solution. Peter Jones and Berger Sevelson, they were bothered by this because they'd find that by the time you got the product or the, the thing designed and ready, the situation that they were designing for had changed or it had adapted or something had happened to, to make this move. So they started thinking in terms of systems, they got involved in the system sciences group as well. And so we we're having these little sessions where they would write papers and then we would all just talk about it. And I got fascinated with the notion of design thinking and the overlay of systems that they were bringing to it. And so got involved with them and in 2010, 12, I think was their first symposium, design thinking symposium. And it was systemic design thinking. And this is at the very beginning when they're still scratching around with ideas. They have a symposium every year. There's about, oh, maybe a hundred people who come, hundred to 200 people who come. And this is what, this is what we do. We just sort of like, sometimes butt heads, sometimes just talk. So there's a lot of synergy, but there's a lot that goes on around really developing this as a discipline. And it's very transdisciplinary, very much so. It blends the design world and the systems world. I'm, I'm a bit of a unicorn in that I'm an evaluator. So there's not too many, there's, there's only, I think maybe one or two other people that I've come across in these symposia who are evaluators, but a lot of researchers, a lot of systems people and design people have come together and, and, and had this systemic design thinking. So I thought if we're going to be encouraging systems thinking with evaluators, evaluation is about design. You design an evaluation to evaluate the design of a program. Yeah, there's a lot of design happening. Yes, there is. And particularly this, a lot of this thinking came about when we had the theme, the AEA annual meeting theme on design. The Gargani's uh, theme, like in yes, 2016? In, right, down in Atlanta. Yeah. And Mary and I did our first, we did a think tank on systemic design thinking, just noodling. And I had just done a, I went to New Zealand and did a, uh, like a master seminar down there where we were doing the same thing because I had presented the year before at ANZIA, which is New Zealand's Evaluation Association. And I had presented on systems thinking, but I was starting to slant it towards design. And they said, well, could you come back next year and maybe do like a master, an all day seminar on this? And I did, and that's what we did. We, we noodled around about program design and evaluation design and how do you incorporate systems thinking concepts and theories into, into the design, not necessarily, not into the implementation of the evaluation, but into the design. And so that's kind of where it, it, it jumped up. So it's a, it's a blend, it's a, I guess what you'd call it, a transdisciplinary blend of thinking that incorporates theories of systems approaches, systems thinking, which is a, whole, a little different piece than systems theory. Systems theory is about how you organize, how you, a way of viewing, a way of seeing. So you, you, there are, the tree has so many branches and so many leaves. You can't even, I can't put it on a slide to show it in a presentation because I would need to have an entire wall. Well, I think your take came to put together a, like a report, right? Early on about like trying to define and talk about these things? Yep. And we, we developed a set of principles for using systems thinking in evaluation. And it, it kind of, as I think about it, I think we got, and the TIG is still very focused on the application of systems thinking to the act of evaluating. And I have kind of gone off on this tangent around design, but it's really about taking note. And I think it fits best with notions of complexity and complex adaptive systems. There's so many different theories and the theory affects what you use as you study the world. But systems thinking itself came out of the anthology that Bob 
Williams and Iraj Imam edited in 2006. That was Portland because they had an author's meeting in Portland. Martin Reynolds, all these big names in actually in the ISSS as well as it's International Society for System Science. That's ISSS. <laughs> and uh, so we had a lot of those folks who were more systems people because that's where Bob did all his doctoral work. I think that what came out of that that really we've used a lot, especially Bob and I, um, it's the notion of systems thinking has kind of revolved around and it's evolved to the point where what we look at are, are boundaries, relationships, and, and really interrelationships and perspectives. So you always, systems are always bound. You can't look at everything, you go nuts. You have perspectives. There are multiple perspectives that are always in, at play in a system. And those perspectives influence what happens. Those perspectives influence decisions, they influence outcomes. And there are also decisions made, which relates to boundaries as to who's included and who's not, who's at the table and who's not. Interrelationships gets to how all these different agents and, and elements of the system inter interact to affect outcomes and to affect impact and to affect affect what happens. It also is cued into the notion of emergence when there are disruptors to the system or when simply the actions of, you, you, we see it in programs where there's this whole plan on a program, you know, the program design is it's gonna go this way. And yet when you get this unique set of circumstances, a unique set of people, something else happens something arises from that that wasn't even anticipated. And that's emergence. That's when something that wasn't planned comes, comes into play and affects what happens. So systems thinking is uniquely qualified to look at that, to capture that and to flex with that. If you're doing an evaluation of a complex problem, systems thinking allows you to not only be able be looking for it, but to capture it and explain what's happening, why is that happening, and provide perspective on how that influenced the program, whether it changed it, uh, whether it may be a failure in the context of the logic model, but not necessarily a failure in the context of the program itself. It's just that emergence happened and the program went in a different direction that worked better for the the agents who were interacting in the system. And that's not all just people. Right. Yeah. Like it could be a failure of the logic model as it was designed, or it's a failure of the logic of the actual logic of the program. Right. And yes. systems design can help us differentiate the two. It sounds like. And can explain how it happened. Yeah. Uh, yes, it, it does. If you have a, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that just totally blow up quanti full quantitative studies. And I've had those where I've had to do pre-test, post-test, post-post, uh, collect and, and uh, compare all the data and you don't see any change. Right. And then they all go, well, why did that happen? It must not have worked. And I'm sitting there, I say, but it did work because, and I will explain, oh, we had a statewide program that we were evaluating for the Department of Education in Ohio. It was a literacy instruction. So the teachers were being trained. The belief was kids weren't reading as well because teachers aren't all on the same page about literacy instruction. And the pre and post assessments of, of participants, and this is 9,000 teachers a year. We did this for, for five years. And the pre and post were showing essentially no change. In fact, sometimes we had negative change, which is driving, the ODE was going nuts over this. Were, when we would have our data meetings, they would say, but how is this happening? And I said, you need to look at what's happening in the post post, because we abandoned the assessment and instead started doing interviews. And interviews and surveys and observations, a mix across the state. And what we were learning was they already knew everything that was in the curriculum that was being taught to them. 
what they were coming for were the tips and the techniques. And so they felt they were coming out of this richer because they were building their toolbox of teaching strategies. And we also found that there were contextual differences in terms of how they took the PD, whether they went and did, it's 30 hours. So did they do it at one week intervals? Did they do it during their summer and do it in a, in a one week piece? Or did they do it in the school year as a, as a teaching team? And we found the most effective outcomes came from those who worked on campus in a teaching team. And we were able to explain that and using systems thinking to explain it in a way that helped them understand that by having this team working in a familiar system, what they were essentially doing is not just learning tools on a personal basis, but they were learning them on a building basis. And they were integrating these tips, techniques, tools, whatever, but they were building this toolbox from K through whatever their highest grade in the building was. And that was making a huge difference. And we then were seeing the difference because we were also running with education as the test scores. And so we were always running the state test. We would run the proficiency scores every year and track the buildings where, where teachers were and were not, you know, trained in, in this literacy instruction. And what we were seeing was a definite trend line with kids reading better in those buildings and more effectively in the ones where they went as teams. And we could explain that from a by using a, a systems perspective, we could actually identify the pieces in that that were working that you wouldn't have gotten if you just did a straight up modeling or data analysis. Right. So. I've got so many questions from everything you've just said. Yeah, just ask. <laughs> oh, one, you brought up that this, this makes sense in really complex situations, right? That yes, yes. It's particularly suited for complex adaptive situation systems. So I also get the sense though, from what you said that in, in some capacity, and especially if we think of like Bronfen Brenner's bioecological framework, like mm -hmm. we are all situated in, in systems. And so like, are we all kind of doing systems thinking work, just not at the level that like people in the systems thinking field are thinking of it? Like, and our boundaries of our work are just so constrained that we're not thinking more broadly about how systems thinking could affect our work. Are we just not doing a good enough job of being a systems thinker? Or is it that if we're working in a smaller boundary that we don't need to? I think there's a little of both that there's intentionality to a systems theory involves a degree of paradigm shift that, and I, it's particularly around that notion of, we talk about it as interrogating boundaries and boundaries are a big piece of systems thinking because, and we see it now with, with a lot of issues around social justice and inequalities that it's that challenging boundaries that have always been accepted that that who's at the table who is and isn't included what is and isn't included but what systems thinkers do is they go one step beyond that and ask why and also ask and what are the consequences of these decisions so we there's an intentionality uh, around interrogating the system and looking at the boundaries, looking at the perspectives that exist and the perspectives that are, where those perspectives come from. Some are external. I do a context mapping exercise that looks at the perspectives both inside and outside. And there are ones from out, some, there are perspectives that come in from outside that influence your program, but don't have any control. So they influence, but don't control. There are also ones who control you have no influence over it, you don't have any choice, then there are the same things that go on inside, it, control and influence and the degree to which the system has a choice around it. There is, uh, it's looking at those interrelationships and understanding how the system interacts with change. Systems don't wanna change and they will fight tooth and nail to not change. So, you actually change a system incrementally, bit by bit. Yet, if we think about a lot of human service programming, it's big. 
yeah. it's going in and doing a massive change. Instead of understanding all the little bits and pieces of the system, finding a best leverage point that's going to have the most impact and picking that one and working on that one first. So I think that we live in the system, we interact with it, but there's a difference in the degree of intentionality with which you engage it. Now, there are some very simple things. There, there are a lot of things that we evaluate that don't necessarily need a full-on perspective you know, systems approach. But I think that as we're getting into these bigger issues around, I mean, these are wicked problems that we're talking about. This notion of wickedness being, they, there are multiple root causes depending upon the context within which the problem is present. So hunger in one part of the world, in one part of a state, in one part of a city even, has different root causes than it might have elsewhere. Poverty, um, diabetes is, a, is, is considered one. Social justice and inequality is. And I think that even when we saw with the Black Lives Matter movements, they're one of the difficulties that those who have not been engaged in this work for, for a period of time, when I mean, you think about all the cultural work, multicultural work that AEA has been doing. So for us, we look at this and we go, well, yeah, duh, um, it's obvious. But for the average American, when this BLM stuff blew up, they didn't understand it in the least because they had never, ever questioned the existence of these boundaries that they didn't understand, these hidden purposes of the systems that they didn't un, had never really seen or inquired into. Even something as simple as school. If you took 20 people, put them in a room and asked them what the purpose of public schooling was, you'd probably get 10 to 12 different opinions. Right. So there's not, there's not consensus. Uh, there's multiple root causes and the solution may not actually be the solution. It may make the situation worse. Uh, it's a constantly moving target, and but the solution, but what e everything you do matters, so you you don't get a do over either. And these are the kinds of problems that I think agencies and organizations are trying to deal with now. And the level of wickedness that goes on in them really requires systems thinking approach. A system, well, we're calling. When you blend systems theory and systems thinking, we're, we're starting to call it systemics now. And I, I like that. It, it kind of systemics is that blending of systems theory, systems thinking into an approach that uh, can be used in evaluation, can be used in program design, evaluation design, as well as implementation and evaluation reporting. Hearing a lot of uh, theory-driven evaluation language being used of like logic modeling, theory of change work and stuff. And I'm wondering, do you see a lot yeah. of parallels there? And like, does theory-driven evaluation kind of fit into this nicely, maybe more so than other evaluation approaches? Or what are your thoughts on that? I think theory can be a bugger sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and particularly with, I think that when I, when I teach the introductory course, I separate out the two and I tell them, we're not talking about systems theories in this course because we would be here until the end of time. Yeah. But systems theory is in a sense, it's what you use to shape how you collect your data and how you analyze the data. So if you're coming from a critical systems uh, theory base, then you're very, very interested in boundaries. You're interested in what are called the victims of the system. You're interested in perspectives. If you're coming from a complexity theory base, you're far more interested in the interrelationships in the effect of disruptors and in emergence. If you're coming from a dynamic systems base, then you're looking, you're in causal loop modeling. You're, you're looking at feedback. You're looking at how these things work together. So there is a degree of theory, but I think not to the level that theory-driven evaluation has been, is, is I guess, being, being promoted and being encouraged in that the theory doesn't necessarily drive the design and that it informs but it isn't the basis on which that evaluation is necessarily built. In fact, I tell people that you can use whatever you've been normally using to collect data, to 
put together your your evaluation, except for except for straight line logic models. Those go those those we don't use those, um, but it's the way you think about what you're doing, the way you think about the situation you're evaluating, and the way you think about the data that you're collecting that's different. When I think of theory-driven evaluation, I think more of program theory as opposed to like social science theory or systems theories. That could have yes. But it, so it sounds like though that a big difference is that although logic models and theories of change are being used in both, that it's very critical and they're going to look very different. Um, that they're not linear in the systems approach, right? Because you've got those. Yes. I'm, 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 I've got a little bit of knowledge, right? It's got those like circular. There'll be a lot of more circular logic type stuff going uh-huh. on. Yeah, there will. And yeah, uh, if you think about. Um, uh, Thermos, systems dynamics is a good place to start to think about like in terms of thermostats or uh, filling a, running a sink with a slow moving drain. So you turn on the water and the water fills up. So you turn it back a little bit till the water drains down. And then maybe you do a really quick burst so you can wash your face, but then you have to turn it down so you can brush your teeth because of the drain. And it's this, uh, this, adapt and flow, adapt and flow. Their systems theory does not drive, it drives the way you think about the situation instead of the way you construct, like you said, with program driven, with theory driven evaluation, you're you're modeling, you're doing logic modeling in, in general, you're doing theory of change. And now I've used some of Huey Chen's uh, a lot of Huey Chen's work in uh, as background. In, in fact, I use that quite a bit for that professional development, the literacy learning one. And I think it's useful in terms of talking about that. But there's it's 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 difficult to communicate to clients, uh, particularly the notion of what theory of change really is, and what what in systems what you're more interested in is finding those points of leverage. If you think about one of the metaphors that I use a lot and the systems world uses a lot is the iceberg. And 15% is above the water, 85% is below the water. And if you think of the iceberg in levels of depth, the, that part that's above the water, those are program outcomes. Those are the events. That's what you see happening. And that's only a tiny piece really of what's going on. What's going on immediately below the surface are the actions that took place, the, the interactions that took place to create those outcomes. But those interactions are reliant upon system structures. That action always occurs in a, in a structure that shapes how those, what actions happen. And those structures, a system is structured or a program is structured according to a set of mental models and assumptions that whoever designed the program had in place. And in fact, those mental models shift and adjust depending upon who's coming, who's going, who's been added in, uh, who's now funding it versus who funded. Funders will bring in there. So you've really got a lot of stakeholder involvement in terms of these mental models. And what I also find is you may have the, at, at the mental model level, which is the very bottom, the deepest part of the iceberg, it, and it's the ballast set part. So it's what keeps that iceberg upright. Uh, that there may even be two sets. It's one of the things that I explore the most as I, as I d- develop my questions to, to kind of plug down through is I'll ask, so why are you here? Or why is this program here? And schools is where I find it the most often. I will ask the teachers, well, why are you guys here? And it, I did this a lot. I did a, I used an iceberg model when I was evaluating charter schools in Ohio. And I would ask them why they were here. And they were not there for the same reason that all the people who actually created the school were or who funded the school. Totally different sets of mental models and assumptions, which clashed when it came to structure and definitely clashed when it came to actions. Uh, That I... And, and I, what I saw was in terms of teacher frustration, that was really where it was happening. It was at the clash. There was a, 
you know, there were mental models around alternative schooling that were driven by financial efficiency on the part of the, what you call administration, the superintendent, the school designer, whoever's running the school. But in terms of the teachers, there was this idea around independence, around being freed from public school requirements, even though they were technically a public school. Right. And, but there was frustration in that there wasn't the money being put into, uh, into, the, into programming, into school. I, math classes where four kids would share a book. And I observed a geometry class where they had three different textbooks because they couldn't afford to buy books for everybody in the class. So they just got what they could get donated. And this explains, I mean, charter schools essentially, at least in Ohio, have essentially no effect on kids. They're no better than, than the public schools they came from. Uh, and uh, where I'd find it, it would be in those structures, it would be in that clash of mental models, and then it would be in the structures. And once you had those structures in place, that influenced everything that happened. So I had a, I had a kid walk up to me one time when I was just doing notes outside a classroom after my observation. He goes, so what are you guys doing here anyway? And I said, well, we just, the state wants us to just come and see what's going on in your school and watch you guys and see how, how you're learning. And uh, he goes, well, what do I have to do to get this school closed? And now we weren't really, we couldn't interview the kids. So I couldn't, I, you know, I wanted to take them in a room and interview them. And I said, for instance, and he says, no, nah, come here, let me show you. And he's showing me all these, he's pulling me around the building and he's showing me all these things. And because it's a spontaneous interaction, it's okay. But it was just, you know, it was just the, the kids had decided, they'd seen me around enough. They had decided that, you know, we might be able to tell this person some things. And actually, the school was closed a year later. Uh, fiscal malfeasance for that one. But oh, I just, with, with all this story and thinking about program design, that in taking a systems thinking approach to all of this, um, and forgive me if I'm getting, because you, you, you mentioned systems approaches and system thinking are different, but broadly, if we're yes. approaching this with a systems viewpoint, um, yes. that in terms of program design, the, the program in the box idea just can't really work. I, it reminds me of my, the first evaluation I ever worked on. The ultimate goal for what we were doing there as evaluators was to understand the basic core components of this program so that they could basically package it up and put it in other locations. Um, yes. And, and I, thinking back to it, like one of the beautiful things about that program were the people involved and, and their core ideology. And I'm not like, we were trying to package that up as best we could so that they could kind of give this to other people to recreate this around the, the country and stuff. But I get the sense now, like in talking with you, that that is so unlikely to happen without complete intentionality of, okay, yes, this is what the program is, but now you have to recreate this with this in mind that works for you and your context and your situation in your system. Yes. Um, context matters and it matters entirely and it matters wholly. And this is what gets ignored by these silver bullet models. They, they're not, like you say, the notion you could pack it up in a box and take it elsewhere. Well, you can't. And a traditional evaluation is not going to capture why. It's just going to tell you that it didn't work here, or it did or did not work. And what a systems approach to evaluation will do, and a systems, um, you know, using systems thinking is going to look into the differences in context as well. Okay, here, here it was. Here's where it worked. And here's where it didn't work and why. What, what were the differences here? How did, it, how did it work well? How did it fall on its face? Uh, let's take a look at this. What could you extract from this box and actually make work in this particular situation? And it also applies well to uh, what I call these, you know, the, the, these, these mismatch programs where programs are essentially designed, developed, and funded uh, by, by middle-class whites. And then they're taken into inner cities or they're taken out to the reservations or they're taken out to contexts that don't match the context 
the personal context of the people who designed it. And they're done, they're implemented with no engagement. It's that, we used to call it the lady bountiful approach, where the lady of the manor rode out with her basket of jams and soups when what people really needed were clothes and uh, money. You know, they needed better living conditions. Uh, they didn't really need jam, but she did her duty to the poor on, on the estate. Well, it's that, that kind of approach. Uh, one of the neighborhoods that I was working with here in Cincinnati, when I, I was an outreach coordinator for what's called Invest in Neighborhoods here, we have 51 neighborhoods and they are all over the map. And when I went into one, which was a public housing project, the first thing they asked was, so, uh, you know, goes, are you tell, you know, goes, so are you coming in telling me you can do something for me? And I said, no, I just want to get to know you guys because I'm new here. And we sat down and we talked and they talked about how many programs come in, you know, and, and they said a stream of white people who come in because this was a, a really mixed Hispanic black neighborhood and a stream of white people who come in and they are there for the, for a year or they're there for two years till they get what they want from you for their own needs and then they leave and you never see them again. And I said, well, so what would you, what do you want from me? I said, what do you want from me? And they said, well, we want to apply for this grant, but we're not quite sure how to do it. I said, okay, so let's sit down and start working on your proposal and I'll just, we'll make regular times and I'll come and help you with that. And they applied to the Department of Justice for this incredible grant that allowed them to put in entrepreneurship programs. They ran it, they, they, uh, they got the funding, they, they, they did everything. And if they ever had questions, I just told you, you can call me with questions, but it wasn't my program, it was theirs. And I think that gets missed in program design that it's who, who are the, who are the real stakeholders and who should really be the owners of the program? Critical systems heuristic is very interested in ownership. In fact, they, they, they really do. Uh, that, that's, that's a big piece of, of, of that theory is theory bases around ownership and victims, like I said before. But yeah, I think that models lack systems thinking entirely. Um, and that's another piece around there, when, when you're doing systemic evaluation, evaluation has consequences. It's very, it, it, and we have an ethical responsibility to be, to think consciously and intentionally about the consequences of the evaluation itself. And that when you're engaged in systemic evaluation and using systemic design thinking to craft your evaluation, you are not just conducting an evaluation of outcomes. What you're also in engaging in is looking for evidence of systemic design thinking in the program's design and implementation itself. So there's a, you can extend this to actually look at that. And I, there's a, it's, it's a housing for the homeless in Los Angeles. Actually, there's, there's a number of programs across the country, but a lot of them are not working quite well. Los Angeles has done it in a very interesting way and they're doing tiny homes. Uh, they're also doing containers as homes. So there's a mix going on. The, the, the one of the tiny home villages was one of the first ones. And these are, they, they follow the definition of tiny homes. They're, they're like a studio apartment in New York City. Uh, they're just not that big. But what was recognized was that homeless camps have a community. There is community there. What they lack is safety. What they lack is a consistent place to be. And what they lack are some of the structural elements that we take for granted around communication, around being able to receive mail. Uh, if you're going to go out for a job, somebody's got to be able to get in touch with you. But how do they do that when you're homeless and you don't even have a phone? You definitely don't have a mailbox and you certainly don't have email. 
So the notion of these tiny homes was built around creating a village that also had a central building for uh, showering, for, for bathing, for uh, laundry, for eating. If you didn't want to eat in your place, uh, you could all, there was a central place for eating where you could get food. There was also office space there for social workers to come and meet with their clients. And there was mail, mail service as well as a phone that could be used, you could use that phone number to receive messages. So the idea was providing some of the structures that you lack when you're transient, but still allowing them the independence of their little bitty homes. And you could have your dog then that way. Uh, one person had chickens. Uh, they, 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 so they could come and go, but the I think one of the biggest pieces that, that the residents would would note was the idea that they could lock a door and their stuff would still be there and that they could go to sleep at night, not worry about being beaten up and, or robbed. And this expanded, there were, they tried, they've tried a number of different approaches. So you've also got high rise container uh, homes where the containers have even been broken up into small studio units there, but always behind the design was this, systemic thinking that went into how do individuals exist in society? How do you meet the assumptions that society has for it? And why, what are the difficulties for those who are homeless in terms of meeting that? And a lot of the homeless, particularly in Los Angeles, have jobs. They are working. It's just that they can't afford a home. So they started thinking about these pieces and then thinking about where can we cite them. Now that has been one problem because they're often cited close to the freeways. And then you have issues of noise, noise and environmental pollution there that uh, are still problematic and have yet to be addressed. But there was a lot of thought put into this whole idea of how does this, how do you provide a group with safety and a place to live without impinging upon the independence that they also need. And it was, these were crafted very carefully and by people who were involved in providing services to the homeless as well as homeless. And they were part of the design as well. So you had a lot of stakeholder engagement and it was made very clear to funding sources that the funders can offer suggestions, but they're not gonna have any control. So it's been an interesting, interesting one. And it, it's one of the few where I've, I've seen more systemic design thinking in terms of just general kind of the design stuff that goes on in the design world around programs, a lot around housing, uh, really cool one around providing meals to the elderly in, in the, in Denmark, that, that it was just really fascinating. Um, in the U S we evaluate more and it's that, that how, using those same principles to design your evaluation uh, so that you are using a systemic perspective to evaluate, but you're also interrogating the degree to which systemic thinking was involved in the design of a program as well. So there's this two streams to a systemic design thinking evaluation, both the mm -hmm. systemic thinking happening in the program, but then applying, applying it to the evaluation itself. Yes, in how you design your evaluation. And I have, there's, a, there's something that, and, and Bob, Bob has, Bob Williams has done a couple of workbooks and they're on my, that resource sheet that I gave you. And I would definitely recommend for people who are starting out to, to grab his workbook, uh, uh, Wicked Solutions, it's a Wicked, yeah, Wicked Solutions. It's, it's this book here. So uh, Wicked Solutions, it, it's, a, it's really a workbook, but it lays out some fundamentals that are, are, are very useful. And then he's gone on. He's, he's, he really likes doing workbooks. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that, I think some of the key pieces to this were, what is it that, that we say? Um, we talk about, oh, here it is. I wrote them down because they just, don't necessarily flow. Um, okay, so a systems thinking evaluation is about understanding interrelationships. It's about engaging with multiple perspectives and it's about reflecting on boundary choices. 
Um, but I would say that it's also important to continually address, and you're doing this over and over, what are the evaluation purposes? And there's a purpose for the program. We often, that's the first thing we go to, and particularly in theory-based, theory-driven evaluation, what's the purpose of the program? And so then what are the resources that are put in? What are the actions that happen? What are the outputs, the outcomes, and the impact? But evaluation has a purpose, and it is important to interrogate that purpose. What is the purpose of the evaluation? Um, what is the scope and focus of the intervention? What is the scope and focus of the evaluation? And do they or do they not complement each other? Or does the evaluation only, only capture a piece? It's when you think about what ought to be the consequences of the evaluation and what actually are the consequences of the evaluation. Uh, there, there are two pieces. And you know, that's that, you know, that negotiation stage. That's the first thing I always ask when I sit down is, the, well, what is it you want? What are you looking for from evaluation? But then I start, when I start to look at the program, what the client wants from the evaluation is not necessarily what, evaluate, what I guess what the purpose of the evaluation should be. And there, there can be some negotiation, there can be some tension, definitely, between those two. And you, you look at how the evaluation purposes promote the consequences, positive or negative, of the evaluation. So you, you have to really, it's thinking deeply about that. That's getting into in a relationship. It's getting into boundaries. And um, so then you also think about what are the criteria and the values that, you know, we always talk about merit, worth, and value. Well, a systemic evaluation is not, is as interested in the criteria that underlie these, these concepts of merit, worth, and value, how that's defined for this program. You're as interested in uh, you know, the, the, the criteria and values that are in place that underlie it. Those are, me those are mental models. And there are assumptions that program designers make about their you know, the target population, the service population, or the, the intended outcomes. There are assumptions that they make, uh, just like the one that came out with, with state ed in terms of the illiteracy PD, that teachers needed to learn about how to teach literacy, that they didn't have all, all they needed. And that wasn't true. That was a completely false assumption, uh, which made them really unhappy until then they learned that they were providing this toolbox that, that was great. And, and some teachers really enjoyed having the review or just seeing it from a different, different side of things. Um, the other piece that you have to think about when you're thinking uh, systemically is how can your evaluation be feasible? So see, we're less, less concerned with the program theory and more concerned with the, with the impact, with actually the consequences of the evaluation, its impact on the program. And also, the degree to which systemic thinking was used to design the program in the first place. Uh, so, like it's a it's a dance. There's there's a bit of a dance going on, and uh, so that focus on consequences is important. And Bob talks a lot about about consequences. Uh, he he comes from a critical systems, uh, I think, perspective in the first place. Uh, He's a soft systems guy and critical systems guy, and so uh, the, this whole notion that the, the, these pieces around mental models and assumptions and consequences are are that's his little nest, and he loves that. So, what do you mean by soft systems? Soft systems are it's a it, it originated in business and organizational development, and it's a way of identifying problems. So, what's going wrong? This is as the soft system started as a way to uh, when when it was particularly I'm trying to think it was a six six well in the US we're much more systems dynamics. This is more, much more British, much more European. But really looking at and in the, I, I'd say it was the late 60s, early 70s, this notion that there are uh, things aren't working quite the way we would hope they would. And uh, 
we're, we're caught up in organizational dynamics that no longer function well. So it's identifying the problems. We, Bob and I have arguments about the degree to which this is very convergent, but uh, you're trying to identify the problems and then what the, within the organization, within this system, and how can you remedy them? Does that mean changing your people? Does that mean restructuring? Does that mean re, uh, looking at your business differently? Sometimes it's a matter of you're just no longer uh, making product that people want or sometimes not offering services, or it could be that you're too big, you need to retrench, or it could be that you need to restructure how you do work. We've seen that a lot where the, from closed offices to open offices to cubicles to back to closed offices to you know to pods to try and understand how do people work best and I think that's a really in fact that's a good example because often those like you say model out of the box as opposed to saying what kind of cult and this is what soft systems would look at what kind of culture do we have going on here and how can we structure the system to support that culture in a way that is beneficial. I'm, mindf I'm mindful of time and we only have a few more minutes left. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we do our little wrap up? No, not that I can think of. Um, I did find, I think I've, I have discovered that this is not, uh, systems thinking and systemic design thinking are not taught easily online. Uh, I, I did an online workshop for AEA this year and I, it needs, digging in. When I, when I do it, we have a room full of toys and art supplies and everybody put, takes everything off the table and leaves it against the wall. And we engage and talk and, and interact. And that's really hard to do in an online setting. So I think it is something that, that you, you need to be able to engage with very, very actively. And, um, that, that's definitely something I've learned from now trying to teach it online. Just doesn't work. So uh, hoping as the pandemic eases that can get back into doing this face-to-face. -face. Well, thank you for making at least our virtual podcast really informative. I really enjoyed hearing from you oh, and hearing all your experiences and thoughts on I'm the glad. matter. And for our listeners, the show notes, uh, Jan has put together a wonderful set of resource, uh, a huge resource list for people who want to start out or have more advanced reading on this topic. And you could probably spend a year reading through all of this stuff. So thank you for that great list. Yes, you, you could. And while the list is alphabetical, I, you know, I did have the starting out one and I really strongly recommend diving into those, the two workbooks by Bob Williams first, first off there at the end of the list. And well, I'm going to move it to the top there. of the list now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. I think if you want to move them up, I, in fact, I can, um, I can, you can change that around. Yeah. I'm or changing if you can't, it. Yeah. Um, so I would say, yeah, start with those workbooks and then uh, just start to start to dabble and uh, do a little Googling uh, the, the, the Systemic Design Association has a ton of publications and papers and that that you can if you're if you're interested in the design aspect of it. I think that that some of the systems writers can get a little heavy and they they can get a little bogged down. Uh, but there are some people like Martin Reynolds at the Open University who are very, very approachable and uh, have lots of lots of open access work that you can get to. Uh, who are great, great ones to start with. So awesome. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the list. Martin Reynolds. I don't even think that's on your list. He might not be on there uh, because he's often in books uh, wow. that are edited. Uh, so, but I would, I, I think Martin Reynolds as an individual, he's at the open university. So he's easy to Google. And uh, he has quite a few papers that he's put out there. So if you Googled Martin Reynolds, you would, you would find things out there by him in PDF. And I've never had a time when I haven't, you know, when, when he's just like shrugged me off when I've had a question. He's, he's really, he likes to answer people's questions. So he's a good, he's a, I think of 
a lot of the guys out there, he's probably one of the most approachable. Well, I appreciate you giving all of these resources. I think they'll be really helpful for folks who want to learn oh, more. Good. Our, just to wrap up, um, your, your contact information is in the show notes, but you know, what's coming up for next for you? What, um, how can we best get in contact with you? Best way I would say is um, probably email. Is, is there an email? There's email in there, right? Yep. Yeah. Email, or you can always go to, go to the Pathfinder website, use the contact page. So that could get to me and I welcome questions uh, and I do answer them. So uh, that's probably the best way. I'm looking forward to New Orleans being face-to-face, hopefully. Fingers crossed. (laughs) If nothing, if, if no new variant rears its head uh, and I'm, I'm still on the fence as to whether, well, because it's so uncertain, but I am on the fence, but I probably will submit a proposal for this design design thinking workshop uh, for a, a full one day workshop. I was also online, you have to teach it three hours and it just doesn't work. So uh, I would love two days, but that that that's hard to convince them about. But to get a full one day have more hands-on workshop. I'll probably be proposing that. Um, so maybe it'll be in there. And if we're face, if we're face-to-face, it'd be great. I'm not sure I will do it online if if we end up being virtual. Otherwise, I oh I am branching out because I'm I'm getting to where I've been doing projects for over 20 years. So I'm really tired of writing reports and and all those pieces. And so what I found I've been doing is kind of backing out of the actual doing of and more providing. Uh, I'm happy to uh, be a capacity builder for anybody who's got questions or conundrums uh, without being tagged onto the evaluation. But if anyone wants advice or has questions, they're welcome to contact me. And what I've actually started doing is uh, gone into freelance editing as well. So I edit, I do PDs, I do materials, I do mostly technical stuff and academic papers, uh, reports, all sorts of things. And I've been enjoying that because I can work to my night owl schedule, which uh, makes me very happy. Nice. (laughs) Total night owl. But other than that, we're going to travel some this year. So I'm looking forward to that, that I get to, we're getting a new we have a new baby coming into the family. Our families are both out in California and we have a new baby coming. And so we're going to meet him in April. And I'm very excited about that. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I haven't been there for two years. So I've got a great nephew who is just, he was just a baby last time I was out there. So he's a toddler. So um, we'll be meeting him. And my nieces are over the moon. They are great nieces. They're over the moon because we promised them that they can happen overnight at the house we're renting. So at our Airbnb, they're going to get to have a sleepover. So they're, they're just absolutely thrilled. And, and uh, it's, it's been a while. It's been two years and, and we do miss not being able to see them. So. Well, if the conference fun. comes and actually is in person, it'll be nice to, I think, meet you for the first time in person. We've been working together for the conference advisory group, but <laughs> I think so. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's such a, I just didn't realize how much I would miss not seeing everybody in person. It was just not the same messing around in a chat window during a, a session and I, and Facebooking, but it's just um, not the same as when, there's no bars. See, there's no bars in virtual conferences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's a big piece, bars and good food. And uh, New Orleans, that's just what I really, really hope we're able to do it in person because New Orleans and food is just, uh, I, I was there for a conference a while back and, and made it a point to go to all these different bars who had originated certain drinks and have their drink. And then I did oh, wow. the same thing with desserts. So, uh, there's, I don't I might need to reach out to you for help on when yeah. we go and I've never the, been. The, I, 
I went to Pat O'Brien's and had a hurricane there. And oh my God, it's a 16 ounce drink. And it's just a blend of liquors with a little bit of fruit juice on top. And they bring you this big bowl of popcorn. And I, when they, when they brought the popcorn, I thought, ah, no, I'm not going to need popcorn. And I took, I got about a quarter of the way through the drink. I thought, I'm going to need that popcorn. <laughs> so, oh yeah, it's, it's really fun. And, and, and tooling around the quarter, the French quarter. And, and there's just jazz everywhere. It'll, it'll, it's a great conference. I if hope you've enjoyed people, this podcast if good, website at thevalueland.fireside.fm. One conference you go to, notified go of new episodes Orleans and contact well us with it. your questions, well, thank you so comments, much, or suggestions. Really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank Until you very much for inviting me. This has been me. a Value Land.